on this Reformation Sunday, I want to invite you to open God's Word to a very special passage as we depart from our usual study in the book of Ephesians to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 12, and as you're making your way to Romans 12, I would invite you to stand to your feet for the reading of God's Word. We'll be reading in Romans chapter 12, verse 11, and this is the Word of the living God. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Father, what a, a privilege it is to come together as the people of God and celebrate yet another Reformation Day. It's hard to believe that it has been just over 500 years and since, since the day Luther hammered the 95 Theses onto the castle wall sparking a public debate in the land and a debate that was heard around the world and continues to reverberate. Thank you that on that day, the gospel began to be recovered. We thank you that many followed in Luther's footsteps as they recovered and embraced the true and biblical gospel. And God, we are the recipients of this great gift that was offered that little town in Germany that day. We thank you so much for using people as your servants so that we uh, might rightly understand uh, the word of God. Uh, we embrace what Luther said, that justification by faith alone is the article upon which the church stands or falls. And so may we recognize this truth clearly in your word. May we embrace it. May we cherish it. And as we look to another figure in church history today, I, I ask that you would challenge our hearts, that you would encourage us, that you would probe deeply into the life of not only this man, but more importantly, the, the God he served as we see some very important qualities of his life and ministry. And so would you be kind to us during this uh, worship service as we study your words, we probe it for deep insight and are challenged to live the Christian life for the glory of God in Jesus name. Amen. The Protestant reformers had a, a motto that is very much worth remembering. Indeed, this Latin phrase, if you have not yet heard it, is worth memorizing as its message carries a, a great, great theological weight. The phrase I'm referring to is Semper Reformanda. Semper Reformanda. That is translated as always reforming. What is it that the reformers had in mind when they uttered these words, always reforming? How did the believers in the 16th century understand what it means as followers of Jesus Christ to be always reforming? And how does this affect you and I? Over 500 years later. Well, there's many things that we could say about Semper Reformanda, always reforming, but let me offer just a few. First, our view of God must always be reforming. We can never learn enough about God. Amen? Indeed, when we go to heaven for all eternity, we will be learning more and more about the character of God. We will go deeper and deeper and deeper into His glory for all eternity. And so our view of God must always be reforming. 
Secondly, our view of sin must always be reforming. We live in a day when some who even name the name of Christ want to minimize sin. They want to marginalize sin. They want to cast sin out of a theological vocabulary. Some of you have actually sat in my study and you have uttered these words. And if you feel like I'm uh, zeroing in on you, please know that I'm not because this has happened countless numbers of times. When you say, Pastor, I really... I have some mistakes in my life and I need some help. And some of you already know what I'm going to say. I'm always quick to say, no, you have not any problems with mistakes. You have problems with sin. You see, the difference between a sin and a mistake is of massive proportion. We have trouble with sin. And so our view of sin must always be reforming. We must learn what it means to identify the sin and repent of the sin, to turn from that sin and turn to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and claim that promise of 1 John chapter 1 verse 9 that says, if we confess our sins, not our mistakes, our sins, he is righteous and will forgive us from all our sin. Third, our view of the gospel must always be reforming. And this goes without saying on Reformation Day. Is we must always make sure that we are understanding the gospel in the way that the word of God proclaims it. This is one of the great themes that we have been discussing in the Veritas class that I am teaching this quarter. Is we are very careful to define the gospel biblically. We are very clear to to steer clear of the humanism that is plaguing the gospel in our generation. The fourth area that affects me in a very particular way, but it also affects you, is that our preaching must always be reforming. We are always going back to the Word of God. We are constantly vigilant. We are on the lookout for truth. Our, our preaching, our proclamation, and it's not just me, as I said, but it's you as well. When you proclaim the word of God in your office, when you proclaim the word of God on the tennis court, when you proclaim the word of God at the mall, when you proclaim the word of God wherever it, you are in the marketplace of ideas. Now, each year on Reformation Sunday, we have been highlighting one of two things. We either highlight a doctrine that was important during the days of the Reformation, or we take a look at a biographical sketch of a person in church history. Thus far, just to review, and many of you were not here several years ago, we have learned about a man by the name of Jan Hus. Jan Hus is what I affectionately refer to as the burning goose. And if you wonder why he is called the burning goose, you can Return back and listen to that sermon or get a hold of me and I'd be happy to get it to you. It's a a sermon I was so pleased to preach as we learned about this great hero of the Christian faith. A few years ago, we studied the life of William Tyndale and I referred to him as a man on fire. The reason he was a man on fire is he was literally burned. He paid for his life because of his allegiance to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In recent days, we have surveyed the life of John Knox. It was John Knox who uttered these words, Give me Scotland or I die. 
It wasn't too many months ago that Doreen and I were actually in Edinburgh and had the opportunity to walk into the church that John Knox pastored. We also had the opportunity to walk down the Royal Mile Road and see where John and his family lived. And then the final thing I remember is Doreen and I walked around St. Giles Cathedral as I was looking and looking. And I remember Doreen says, what are you looking for? I said, just, just bear with me. I'm looking for something. Tom Junkmas knows exactly and Laura know exactly what I was looking for. And we were literally wandering around in the parking lot. And finally, Doreen's like, what gifts? And I, about that time, I looked down and there it was. And that's where John Knox was buried in a parking spot. That's where this great reformer lies. Today on Reformation Sunday, we turn our attention to yet another man that I trust will inspire you and and give you a great deal of courage. But before I introduce him, I want to have you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. And the reason I want to have you turn to Hebrews 11 beginning in verse 4, is that from time to time, I will receive a question, and that question goes something like this. Why preach on a historical figure? Why a figure in church history? Why don't you just preach the Scripture? Well, you'll learn this morning that both will occur. But look with me at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4 and following. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Here is a historical character who died and went to be with the Lord. And I I love the way the word of God puts it at that point. Though he died, he still speaks. I love to refer to this as dead men talking. Dead men talking. And so we have characters such as this and characters throughout the word of God and characters throughout church history who have died and they are with their savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, yet because of their example, yet because of their passion, yet because of their love for the word of God, yet because of their allegiance to the gospel, they still speak. They still speak. Today we turn our attention to a man who was not in a strict sense a reformer of the 16th century. But he is one who courageously carried the torch of truth and he remained committed to the dogma of our Reformation heroes. His name is George Whitfield. And the title of the message this morning is The Fiery Preaching of George Whitfield. This morning, I want you, I want you to uh, take a journey with me back to the 18th century, to a small town in England where Whitfield was born and raised. And I want to give you a sense of the man and his mission. I want to tell you a little bit about his life. I want to tell you a bit about his commitments, his pre-commitments, and also share some of the challenges he's faced. And along the way, and at the end, draw forth some very practical applications that will hit you right where you live, even though we live a couple hundred years outside of Whitfield's historical context. This morning, I want you to look with me through two lenses, if you will. The first lens is what you might refer to as Whitfield's life. We'll take a moment to look at his life. And then the second lens I want you to look at me with is the the labors of Whitfield. But first, look with me at his life. 
And I want you to see a basic biography as we begin with his birth. George Whitfield was born on 16, 16 December 1714 in Gloucester, England. His father died when he was just a child, just a baby. Whitfield was two years of age. Here's a, a beautiful photograph of an area just, just uh, uh, nearby the town of Gloucester where Whitfield was born and raised. His mother remarried when he was eight years of age. And so you can sense some of the pain in his life, even at an early age. And as a young boy, he was involved in lying and cheating and cursing. Early on, it was clear that Whitfield, despite some of his problems as a, as a young boy, had an absolutely remarkable mind. Believe it or not, he began to read the pages of the New Testament, Greek Testament, at the age of 16, yet he remained unconverted. Can you imagine that? Here's a 16-year-old boy who's lying and thieving and, 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 and using, using profanity, and he learns Koine Greek, and he begins to read the Greek New Testament at the age of 16. As a side, there's a very important lesson I think we ought to pay close attention to here. And that is that theological knowledge or erudition, as some would say, means absolutely nothing apart from conversion. Did you know that you can, you can study a systematic theology, you can study a biblical theology, you can memorize verses until the cows come home, you can memorize all your Awana verses and all your Royal Ranger verses, and you can do it all. And still be as unconverted as the doorpost. That was the life of George Whitfield at the age of 16. Early on, it was clear that he was a remarkable young man. At the age of 18, Whitfield entered Pembroke College at Oxford University in England. And like his predecessor, Martin Luther, he struggled spiritually. And so here is this, this young man who attends this, this very elite university, but he struggled spiritually like Martin Luther did as well. One writer says this, one of Luther's biographers said that Luther's days as a novice were occupied with those religious exercises designed to flood the soul with peace. Prayers came seven times daily. After eight hours of sleep, the monks were awakened between one and two in the morning by the ring of the cloister bell. Now think about that for a minute. You get awakened by the cloister bell. I, I don't want to be awakened by the cloister bell, do you? Tyler, you want to get awakened by the cloister bell? That's just not cool. Yet that's what happens to this young, unconverted Roman Catholic monk. For Luther, all these religious activities that he engaged in, he thought that they would bring peace to his soul. But the fasting and the prayers and the silence and the solitude and even being awakened by the cloister bell at one or two o'clock in the morning did not bring peace. Rather, all these religious activities brought only despair. And so like Luther, Whitfield tried and tried and tried to earn favor in the sight of a holy God. Have you been there? Have you done that? I'm going to go to church. I'm going to memorize scripture. I'm going to be committed. I'm going to really be committed. I'm going to follow through. I'm going to, I'm going to do my best to climb the ladder and earn favor in the sight of a holy God. And here's what Whitfield learned as an unconverted young man. 
he learned that there was no rest for his soul. During those days at Oxford, he was introduced to a very interesting club called the Oxford Holy Club. Some of you have heard of the Oxford Holy Club. It was started by uh, Charles Wesley, and we sing many of Wesley's hymns to this day, Oh, Can It Be, and others. Born in 1707, died in 1788. And it was also at this time that our figure, George Whitfield, became friends with not only Charles Wesley, but John Wesley, who is the founder of the Methodist Church. Turn your attention now with me from the birth, more importantly, to the new birth of George Whitfield. Just a few years into his tenure at Oxford, Whitfield was 21 years of age, and he was given a copy of a book by Charles Wesley. And I have the book here, and it's a book that I purchased over 20 years ago. And when I first learned of the conversion story of George Whitfield, how Charles Wesley gave him a copy of The Life of God and the Soul of a Man by Henry Scougal. I had to have it. And I searched and searched and searched and searched. I couldn't find it. And one day I found a, a little uh, publishing company by the name of Sprinkle Publications. I don't even know if they, they exist anymore. And they had reprinted this little book. It's a tiny book, uh, less than 160 pages. And I think I paid... 20 or 25 dollars for this i can't remember and and it was well worth the money last week as i prepared the message i i I went on to amazon to try to find this book not for myself but for each of you because i think you deserve to have a copy and did you know you don't have to hunt high or low anymore for this book you can get a copy of this for 99 cents on kindle and if memory serves me correctly, there are even a couple versions of this book that you can receive for free on Kindle. And so I commend it to you. It's not easy reading. Some of the stuff you might skim through, but there are some treasures in this book. There are some gems in this book. Here's the one that as a, as a young pastor, I memorized. It, it had such a deep effect on me. And it goes like this. Henry School said, the worth and the excellency of a soul is to be measured By the object of its love. The worth and the excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. You say, I don't know if I get it. What means this? If all you're about is getting a latte every day, that says a lot about you. If all you're about is is watching the football games and that's your passion in life, That says a lot about you. Now, I use those for a very specific example. I love lattes and I love football, but it's not the most important thing in my life. If it was, it would tell something about my soul. It would tell me that I was a shrinking little soul. The worth and the excellence of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. Well, in this book that was gifted to him by his friend Charles Wesley... George Whitfield learned that the path of salvation had nothing to do with all of the religious exercise that he had been involved in. It was the influence of Scoogle's book that led to the regeneration of his heart and the subsequent conversion of George Whitfield. This is the book. And for me, I get, I get very nostalgic about these kinds of things. I hold in my hand the book. That the sovereign God of the universe used to get a hold of George Whitfield, who we will learn had a very important part in the conversions of hundreds of thousands of people. 
It was this book. There's another book I want to introduce you to because as a newly converted Christian, George Whitfield also picked up a copy of the Matthew Henry Commentary. Some of you have this book. And as I was preparing for this message, I got to thinking and I got nostalgic again because I said to myself, when I was in my early 20s, this was my first commentary. I remember the day I went to Pilgrim Books, which doesn't exist anymore in Portland. And this was on sale. And I thought, I can afford that. Barely. And I picked up a copy of one of the most well-known Puritan writers, Matthew Henry, and began to devour this commentary. I would, I would commend it to you. Whitfield devoured Matthew Henry's commentary. It's an explanation of the Reformed faith that would influence Whitfield's life and ministry for the remainder of his days. Which leads us to the third area I want you to see about his life, and that is the ministry of Whitfield. He graduated from Oxford in 1736. He then returned to Gloucester and was ordained as a deacon in the Church of England. And at this time, he began as he headed out to preach in the city of London. He would preach in church after church after church in London. And two years later, Whitfield made a very important journey. He set sail for Savannah, Georgia, of all places, in 1738. Altogether, he would take seven trips across the Atlantic to the American colonies. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know if I'm interested in the 18th century of taking a trip from England to Savannah, Georgia, in a boat across the Atlantic Ocean. Whitfield did it seven times. So this is a thumbnail sketch of George Whitfield's life. There are many, many details that we must omit for the sake of time. But let me state it clearly that Whitfield lived a blessed life. He lived an effective life. He lived a godly life. And I want to transition now from Whitfield's life to the second important lens and have you look with me at the labors of George Whitfield. Tucked away in the book of Romans in chapter 12, we have already discovered this verse, verse 11, that says, Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, and serve the Lord. And I want you to see with me three biblical qualities that mark the life of George Whitfield. The first is called holy eagerness. Holy eagerness. Paul says, do not be slothful in zeal. This is simply put, holy eagerness. It's a character quality that we saw throughout the adult life of a newly converted George Whitfield. And in order to understand what this means, I want you to take just a minute with me and examine the word slothful, slothful. And I know you all know what a sloth looks like. It's that, you know, that real slow, cute, maybe ugly kind of a creature. That's the sloth. Well, the word of God addresses what it means to be slothful. And that refers to a person who is lazy and a person who is idle. In the parable of the talents, Jesus refers to the servant, the wicked servant, who was slothful, which to me just describes how sinful it truly is to be a slothful person. Related to that word slothful is the word sluggard, a, a word that the, the writer of Proverbs uses again and again. A person who is merely inclined to the sin of slothfulness. Listen to a few of these verses. Proverbs 6, 9. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? 
Proverbs 13, 4, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. I love Proverbs 19, 24. It says, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish and he will not even bring it back to his mouth. I heard a pastor many years ago describe this in these terms. It would be like the sluggard is is alone in his living room and he calls Domino's and said, bring me a large pepperoni pizza. And the guy comes to the door and he rings the doorbell and the guy's in his easy chair and he says, I'm too tired to come to the door. Just leave it at the door. Maybe one of my neighbors will pick it up and bring it to me. I'm so tired. What a pitiful sight. This is the sluggard that the Proverbs refer to. Proverbs 21, 25, the desire of the sluggard kills him for his hands refuse to labor. There is a Protestant work ethic that we receive from The reformers on the Protestant Reformation that we are great recipients of to this day. Unfortunately, in American culture, we have many young people who are inclined to the sin of slothfulness. They are sluggards. Proverbs 26, 14, as a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. There is a specific reason for looking at all these passages that refer to being a sluggard or the sin of slothfulness. Here's what the Word of God says in verse 11. Romans 12, verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. You say, what does it mean to be zealous? It means to be a person of diligence. It means to do your best. It means to do your best. The, the word could also be translated as earnestness. And so when Paul says, do not be slothful in zeal, he means that the people of God, that Christ followers are to demonstrate a holy eagerness. This is exactly the kind of person that George Whitfield was. He was a man of holy eagerness. He had a holy eagerness to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He had a holy eagerness to love people with the love of Jesus Christ. He had a holy eagerness to exalt the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what Whitfield said. He said, I am never better than when I am brought to lie at the foot of of the cross. This is a man of holy eagerness. But there's another quality I want you to see. It's the second quality in Romans 12:11, and that is the quality of holy fervor. Holy fervor. That word fervent comes from a Greek word and it's a great word. It means to be inflamed or to boil. It means to be enthusiastic. It means to be excited. It means when you hear the gospel, you're excited. It means when you hear the word of God, you, you, you're eager. I talked to one little girl this morning, and she was so excited to be in church. Oh, would her passion and enthusiasm spread throughout the church family and spread across the evangelical landscape when many of the other evangelicals are walking to church like the slugger. I best I better go to church and do the good thing and sit in the pew and get bored again. What does the word of God say? Romans 12 says that we are to be a people who are fervent in spirit. 
The only other place that we find the Greek word translated as fervent, it appears in Acts chapter 18, 24 and 25. And the verse makes reference to another zealous man by the name of Apollos. Let me read it. It says, Now a Jew by the name of Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus, the city of Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent. There's the word. Being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. As I read verse 11 in Romans chapter 12, I said to myself, this is exactly what marked the life of George Whitfield. He was a man of holy fervor. You say, what do you mean? His holy fervor exposed sin. His holy fervor pleaded with sinners to turn from their sin and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. His holy fervor urged sinners to find their joy and their satisfaction and their contentment in Christ. His holy fervor demanded the same fervor in each of the listeners because the scriptures demand of them, be fervent in spirit. Holy eagerness, holy fervor. Notice the third characteristic in verse 11. Paul refers to this as holy service, and we have, we have touched on the word translated service in a few other sermons. It comes from the Greek word doulos, and you'll recall that is the Greek word that is translated to serve or be a slave. Paul said this to the Ephesian elders, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from first, the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord. I was a slave to the Lord with all humility and tears, with trials that happened to me, even through the plot of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house. What do you see in Paul? You see that holy eagerness. You see that holy fervor. You see that holy service. Paul continues in the next chapter over in Romans 14, verse 18. He says, whoever serves Christ, whoever is a slave to Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. George Whitfield was such a man. He was a man committed to holy service. And these three character qualities that we have examined, I believe, nicely summarize the labors of George Whitfield. But they also beckon you and I to be a man, to be a woman of holy eagerness, holy fervor, and holy service. Can, can you say that? Can you honestly say to the Lord, Lord, I, I am... By your grace and for your glory, I am a man or a woman. I am a young man or a young woman of holy eagerness. I I love to wake up in the morning and open the word of God. It's even better with a great big cup of steaming coffee. Do you think that's sacrilegious? Who created that coffee, that steaming cup of coffee or that tea or whatever it is that you enjoy together with your morning study of the word of God? Can you say that your life is marked by a holy fervor? That when you see sin in the culture, that you have a passion to confront it. And I I fear, my friends, that we have been we've been brainwashed by our culture that say, don't be so judgmental. Don't be so condemning. Yet, when we see a sin in the culture, what does the Word of God call us to do? It calls us to confront it. And then we deal with the fallout, don't we? 
We deal with the people in postmodern culture that say, you're judgmental, you're a hypocrite, you're a bigot, you're a religious zealot. And you think to yourself, holy eagerness, holy fervor. Another angle to ask is this, what is hindering your holy eagerness? What is hindering your holy fervor? What is it in your life that's hindering holy service? It could be a possession. It could be a talent. It could be a time issue. It could be your career. It could be a friend. It could be anything. What is hindering those three things? And once you identify those roadblocks, you ask this simple question. And it's the question I ask more than any other in biblical counseling. What would repentance look like for you? I've identified this roadblock. It is preventing me from being a man or a woman of holy eagerness, holy service, and holy fervor. I've identified the roadblock. Now, what does repentance look like for me? How do I either eliminate it? How do I modify it? How do I deal with this, this, this besetting sin that is preventing me from being the kind of man or woman God wants me to be? Now, in addition to these three character qualities that marked the life of George Whitfield, I want you to see three marks of his ministry. And by the way, just as a side, one of the, the dangers of doing biographical preaching, it makes it sound like the individual had no problems. May I state for the record that George Whitfield was totally depraved, just like me and just like you. But we're focusing this morning on the good that God did in this man's life. And so finally, notice three marks of his ministry. And there are many more that we could focus on, but three will, will suit us just fine this morning. Number one, I want you to see that he was a persistent evangelist. You might be surprised to learn if you've never had the, the opportunity to study the life of George Whitfield that he had a very interesting friend. And his friend is a guy that I've been fascinated with for years because of his mind, because of his intellect, because of his inventiveness, because of uh, his, his role in American history, because of the other friends that he had. Some of you know what's coming is George Whitfield was good friends with none other than Benjamin Franklin. Isn't that something? Benjamin Franklin. Listen to the words of Ben Franklin. He said, Mr. Whitfield used indeed to pray for my conversion, but he never had the satisfaction of believing that his prayers were heard. He said, ours was a mere civil friendship, sincere on both sides that lasted until death. Then in a letter to Benjamin Franklin, Whitfield writes, I find that you grow more and more famous in the learned world. As you have made pretty considerable progress on the mysteries of electricity, I would now humbly recommend to your, your diligent, unprejudiced pursuit and study the mystery of the new birth. For me, that just blows my mind. It's like, hey, buddy, I hear you, you, you're, you're on the verge of discovering electricity. Why don't you turn your attention to something that will have a stake in your eternal soul? He continues, it is a most important, interesting study. That is the mystery of the new birth. And when mastered, will richly answer and repay you for all your pains. One at whose bar we are shortly to appear hath solemnly declared that without it, that is the new birth, that is without regeneration, we cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. 
And he closes this letter with your very affectionate friend and obliged servant, George Whitfield. Whitfield's biographer adds, Franklin took a liking to him, speaking of Whitfield, though he never embraced his theology. How sad. And so Whitfield, you see, was a, was a walking evangelist. He loved to tell people about Jesus. Whitfield began with sin, and he proceeded to tell people about the Savior. He would tell them that they were lawbreakers, that they were lost without hope and without God, that they were enemies of God, that they were under the wrath of God. And once the sinner understood that, he poured on the balm of gospel grace. And as I said earlier, literally countless thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people believed because George Whitfield was a persistent evangelist. He would speak to literally thousands of people. Now think about this. We're talking 18th century. Um, the microphone had not been invented. While electricity was on the horizon because of the, the sharp God-given mind of Benjamin Franklin, there were no microphones. I remember once on Legrand, the power went out on a day I was preaching. And someone came up to me and said, Pastor, the power's out. What are you going to do? I said, I'm going to preach the word of God. He said, well, how can you do that without a microphone? I said, there's 250 people here. Whitfield preached to 20,000. He did just fine. Oh, that's interesting. This was an amazing man. George Whitfield was a persistent evangelist. Paul told Timothy, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill, fulfill your ministry. It was the gospel message that was the defining mark of George Whitfield's life. Why? George Whitfield was a persistent evangelist. Second, I want you to see that he was a powerful preacher. And oh, was he a powerful preacher. It was another preacher, G. Campbell Morgan, who identified three very specific marks of a powerful preacher. Here are the marks. A powerful preacher should emphasize truth. He should be clear or clarity. And there should be passion in his messages. And as I heard those three qualities, I, my mind instantly turned to George Whitfield. He was that kind of a preacher. His messages were absolutely packed with truth. And as such, he embraced a strong view of the sovereignty of God over all things, including salvation. Whitfield said this, I embrace the Calvinistic scheme, not because of Calvin, but because Jesus Christ has taught it to me. He faithfully taught throughout his adult life the doctrines of grace. He taught total depravity. He taught unconditional election. He taught particular redemption. He taught irresistible grace. And yes, he taught perseverance of the saints. Whitfield adds, these are doctrines which when attended with divine energy and preached with power always have and always will be and always will make their way through the world. However weak the instrument delivers them, they may be. And he was referring to himself as that weak instrument. And of course, Whitfield's messages were marked by a stunning degree of clarity. It was George Whitfield that said the doctrines of our election, 
and free justification in Christ Jesus, fill my soul with holy fire and afford me great confidence in God my Savior. I hope we shall catch fire from each other and that there should be a holy emulation amongst us all who shall most debase men and exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing but the Reformation can do this. I know that Christ is all in all. I love that phrase. I hope we will catch fire from one another. Man, if you're an Ironman, my my hope this year is that as we come together and study theology, that we would catch fire because we're in the presence of one another. Women, I would urge you as you're studying the Bible together, that you would catch fire from one another. You take a person who's studying the scripture and they teach you that scripture and that that fire is, is passed to you. And then your responsibility, your obligation is to take that fire and put it in someone else's lap because you're excited about the word of God. This is exactly what George Whitfield did. And of course, his preaching was characteristically passionate, probably as passionate as anyone throughout church history, save Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He prayed, God, give me a deep humility, a well-guided zeal, a burning love and a single eye, and then let men or devils do their worst. In other words, bring it on, because I'm going to preach the word of God passionately in all purity. And so his preaching was marked, as G. Campbell Morgan observed, by truth, clarity, and passion. Indeed, this is a man who is a passionate preacher. There's a final thing I want you to see, and that is that he was a persevering preacher. This is a man that was not distracted by anyone or anything. Nothing delayed this man. Nothing distracted this man. Nothing prevented George Whitfield from boldly proclaiming the truth. Whitfield's biographer, and I commend Arnold Dallemeyer's two-volume set to you. It's an amazing two-volume work on the life of Whitfield. He said this, what I am, and he quoted Whitfield, What I am most afraid of is lest I should fall in the latter stages of my road. But he hath loved and helped me and will love and help me to the end. I pray that I may not go out as snuff. I would fain die blazing, not with human glory, but the love of Jesus Christ. See, George Whitfield was a, a persevering preacher. And so we've looked at Whitfield's life. We've looked at his labors. And in doing so, we have underscored three very important qualities. He possessed holy eagerness. He possessed holy fervor. And he was one who possessed holy service. And we have seen these three marks of his ministry. That he was a persistent evangelist. He was a a powerful preacher. He was a, a persevering preacher. And we draw our time to a close by making some very important practical applications that you and I can apply to our lives. The first thing that I thought of as I was studying the life of Whitfield and wondered how I could apply this to you and I at Christ Fellowship, and that is, it is likely that none of us will ever preach to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people, myself included. It is likely that that will never happen. Yet, each one of us, every boy that follows Jesus, every girl that follows Jesus, Every man and every woman that follows Jesus, no matter what your occupation, you may be a plumber, you may be a a preschool teacher, you may be a pharmacist, you may be a, a carpenter, 
You may be a principal or administrator. You may be a physician or a lawyer. You may be a a housemaker. You may be even unemployed. Wherever you are in your life right now, you are called as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ to faithfully proclaim the gospel. Here's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 16. He says, For if I preach the gospel... That gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity, necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. My, my goal is that you would walk out of the sanctuary this morning with those words reverberating in your heart and mind. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. You say, but what if I get criticized? You say, what if I get condemned? You say, what if I get mocked? You say, what if I says something that will land me in jail? Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. There's a second point of application, and that is that Whitfield's evangelistic fervor reminds us of a very important truth, especially if you have a passion for Reformed theology, which many of you do. And it reminds us this, that we balance the twin truths of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. We've discussed this in our Veritas class this quarter that I frequently will ask the question, is God sovereign or is man responsible? And the answer is yes. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. God sovereignly ordains all things, but man also has a responsibility to love God, worship God, serve God. Our responsibility is to believe the gospel, to repent of our sins, to serve in ministry. We balance these twin realities of God's sovereignty and our responsibility. And thirdly, Whitfield's fiery preaching should inspire us to preach with fervor wherever God gives us an opportunity. It might be in the cafeteria. And when I say preach with fervor, I don't mean you're going to stand up on a chair like a crazy man or like John the Baptist. But I just mean you're, you're sitting at, to young people. You're sitting at the table and you just you share the simple gospel with your friend. That's preaching with fervor. That's preaching with pas- passion. Or you're in the office place and someone says to you, you're, you're different than my other friends. What's different about you? And it's an opportunity to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. In 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul uttered these words to the young man, Timothy. He said, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Oh, that the the fiery preaching and passion of George Whitfield would affect us all. May the life and the labors of George Whitfield inspire you and challenge you as you live your Christian life for the glory of God. And may the fiery preaching of Whitfield prompt each one of you to do the same. And may we say with those who went before this great evangelical preacher, Semper Reformanda. Always reforming. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the example of this godly man. And as we observed earlier, we acknowledge that he was a sinner, that he battled sin as an unconverted man, and he continued to battle sin as a converted man, yet you used him in a powerful way. 
God, we thank you for his life. We thank you for his labors. We thank you for using this man to to make a difference in the lives of, of thousands upon thousands of people. We thank you for the, the thousands of sermons that he preached. Uh, mind-boggling to think of those, those sermons that he, he preached day in and day out. And so, Lord, would you enable us? Would you discipline us? Would you grant us uh, courage? Would you grant us passion? All of which can be modeled in the life of this man, the life of George Whitfield. We thank you once again for the truths of the Protestant Reformation. We thank you most important for the word of God and the gospel. And we live all for the glory of God. May you be glorified in everything we say and do in Christ's name. Amen.